to another episode of Dr. Me First. I'm your colleague in medicine and your life coach in life, Dr. Aaron Wiseman. And I am just pumped to bring you another episode today on Dr. Me First. This one is a good one. I say that about all of them, but I really, really, really love this one. I did not know Dr. Michelle May before we got on the podcast episode, but afterwards I'm like, geez, I need some more of her in my life. I need to know all about what she's doing. She'll tell about her story and her journey, but she's actually been on the entrepreneurial train well before the rest of us. Hell, I was in high school when she jumped out of clinical practice and into her practice of mindful eating. So she'll share a little bit about that today. She'll also talk about being a conscious physician and what that looks like. And then the most that point that I got out of it, which I'm going to talk about in our kick of encouragement, is going from being a yo-yo to a pendulum. So listen for that in the conversation. Enjoy it. Soak it all up. Stick around afterwards for our kick of encouragement. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Michelle May. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me, Erin. All right. Well, tell all of our listeners all about your marvelous self. Well, thanks. Um, You know, I was a family doc for many years. I practiced medicine in a suburb of Phoenix for, gosh, 16 years, I guess. Um, But during that time, I was sort of struggling with my own disordered eating and body image issues. So I really, out of that, developed this passion for helping other people resolve their own unhealthy relationship with food and create a healthier relationship with the way they feel about their bodies and to really help them get out of their own way. So back in 1999, which right now it's our 20th anniversary, I formed a company that's now called Am I Hungry? Mindful Eating Programs and Training. And when I started that, I was still practicing medicine. I had two young children and a husband. And um, I kind of was just doing this on the side, just really a passion project. I was teaching workshops on my half day off from work or sometimes in the evening. But it really grew and grew. And I found that the things that we were doing there were making such a big difference for people. So as these things happen when you know when you're a woman with passion as you well know it kind of started to take on a life of its own and and pretty soon i found that i had um really a niche that was just perfect for me based on my medical background but more important my personal background and my evolving expertise in this area so i wrote my first book in 2004 and then in 2006, I started uh, training other health and wellness professionals how to offer the workshops I developed. And so eventually, um, later that year, I finally realized that I had uh, created two big jobs for myself and I needed to pick a lane because I couldn't do both anymore. I wasn't able to really practice what I was preaching, which is about self-care and balance. And so as much as I loved family medicine, for me, I felt like this, this other work I was doing was very unique and could make a big difference in the world. And so I shifted in 2006. I retired from medical practice 
And now I focus fully on mindful eating. I speak, I write, I train people. I, you know, talk to the media, anything I can do to get the word out about this. Girl, you were way ahead of, way of, ahead of the wave on all of this. Well, and I'll tell you, that made it challenging because for a long time, I got a lot of, what do you mean diets don't work? And what's this mindful eating thing? And I mean, I still do because obviously the way social media is, the internet, that it's really become even harder to be heard above the noise. But I think a lot of times, a lot of our referrals or recommendations actually come from the health and wellness community because I think people who do this kind of work really understand that bad diets don't work and restriction and deprivation only leads to binging and weight cycling and yo-yo dieting and other issues. So, I, you know, I, I really love what I do and it's just kind of an, a different way for me to, to make a difference. I love it. So 2006 is when you jumped off full time of the practicing boat onto into your lane of doing mindful eating. Tell me a little bit more how that's evolved over the last 13 years. Yeah, so I when I left full time family medicine, it created space for me to be able to do other things in this area. So I did more writing. I I now have 14 um, books, workbooks, and training manuals that I've written. Um, it also allowed me to do workshops in a corporate setting, which I don't do personally anymore, but we train other people to do that. Um, and it allowed me to travel around the country, even around the world, to speak on this topic, which is something I'm still really passionate about. In fact, I have a new talk that I gave uh, at the Arizona Academy of Family Physicians recently called shifting from weight to well-being and it's really about moving from this weight-centered conversation to a weight neutral or weight inclusive conversation that's about well-being not a number on the scale so you know i think it really just created space for me to learn more about my um topic area and to also share it with more people yeah absolutely and you know one thing that i've learned being a female entrepreneur is that your business teaches you lessons. Oh my, you, <laughs> you couldn't, you couldn't be more, more accurate there. I, I just, because it's our 20th anniversary, I've been kind of doing a recap of the growth of the business over the years. And, um, you know, it's so interesting. I, I look back, I, I wish I could take my first book off the market, make it completely disappear because, you know, there are things in there that I really no longer believe or teach anymore. But I recognize that without having written that first book, I couldn't have evolved to the point that I, I understand now. And I, I just think that we have to be willing to make mistakes if, we're, if we want to grow. I think we have to be willing to learn sometimes by the seat of our pants. Um, and, you know, I sometimes have to remind myself that uh, this is not brain surgery. It's much harder. And, <laughs> and we have to, you know, we have to be, I think, I think this was one of my lessons along the way in, in my own recovery from my own disordered eating is that my perfectionism um, is in some ways a small gift, but more ways than not, it gets in my way. And I see this with a lot of physicians, especially female physicians who want to be a perfect mom, perfect doc, perfect business person, and have a great social life and sex life and beautiful, 
you know, children and physical health. And, you know, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And I think that, you know, part of this work has taught me to be able to step back, um, allow for room to make mistakes and, and grow and um, really see that over time, you know, this evolution is, is really amazing. And I'm not done yet. I, I have a long way to go and I, I continue to, to be amazed at the things and the opportunities that keep coming up just because I'm, I'm willing to get out of my own way. Absolutely. But I'm still <laughs> yeah, you are such an inspiration. And I want to keep talking more business. Maybe we'll, we'll wrap back around to it at the end of the conversation. But we have to get into your words, which are mindful eating. And you've mm. already alluded to a little bit of that. But I would love you to explain why you picked it and jump down into a deeper depth about it. Yeah, you know, it, that's not what I was calling what I did at first, but I came across that term later in my work and it was perfect for what I do. So, you know, if I could, I'd like to contrast mindful eating first with what, what, what's mainly going on in our culture around eating and food. And that is that a lot of people, a lot of our patients are struggling with mindless eating. In other words, completely unconscious choices, eating whatever is there, eating in front of the TV, um, eating when they're not hungry, eating past the point of satiety. And this happens for a lot of different reasons, which I'd be happy to talk more about. Um, at the same time, we have a cultural message that there are good foods and bad foods and good ways to eat and bad ways to eat. And what's interesting about that is that those definitions evolve continually. So all the time, this definition of what we should be doing or shouldn't be doing keeps changing. And I, I find that people become really confused. And more important, they develop a pattern that I call the eat, repent, re repeat cycle. The eat, repent, repeat cycle is when people eat something that they've been told they shouldn't or is bad for them, they feel guilty, they promise themselves they won't eat it again, or they'll go back on their diet, or they'll spend 60 minutes on the treadmill, the repent phase, which only leads to more feelings of deprivation and restriction and, you know, back to the overeating cycle. And so for me and the work that I do, it's really around letting people know that we don't have these two options that many of the people I work with have been stuck in, which is I'm either overeating and out of control, or I'm being good and I'm in control. And so people vacillate from in control, out of control, in control, out of control. Kind of, that's really what that yo-yo dieting is all about. You're wound up tight following all the rules, or you're raveling back down toward the bottom, not able to do it anymore. You see, yo-yos can't stop in the middle. There's no middle ground. People are either on the diet or off the diet. Now, as physicians, we may not always see that for what it is. We may not be asking the right questions. I found um, once I became aware of this that patients who had lost a lot of weight on Weight Watchers, for example, and had come in and they were excited and I was excited and everybody wrote it in the chart and the nurse commented on it or the MA commented on it, everybody was happy. Then when they gained the weight back, and when I say when, not if, because the vast majority of people will, we can talk more about why that is as well. 
But when they gain their way back, they don't want to come back in because now they're ashamed. Everybody was applauding them and now they feel bad. Um, an unconscious physician would shame them even further by asking them what happened or commenting on the weight gain. Um, but I think a better place to be would be not to be commenting on people's weights in the first place so we don't get them in, caught in that trap. Because really, what we want is for people to find a balance between that overeating, restrictive eating. So what I teach people to do is change that whole model from a yo-yo to a pendulum, where you might sometimes eat a little less or eat a little more. You might sometimes be more conscious about nutrition, other times maybe not so much. But there's a middle in a pendulum, and the less you give energy to restriction and deprivation, or the less you fall into this kind of out of control, mindless um, and emotional eating, the more likely your pendulum is to sort of slow down and find its way to the middle where there's a smaller arc that you have flexibility. You don't need that rigid approach, but you're still not you know, swinging to these opposite extremes which don't feel good physically or emotionally. And heaven forbid you should have something like diabetes where your blood sugar is going right along with it. Does that make sense, Erin? That absolutely makes sense. And I love every single thing that you're talking about. And one point that I want to pull out from, from that is talking about being a conscious physician versus an unconscious physician when you're talking about mindful eating. Can you go into that a little bit more and maybe give me some examples of how I can be more cautious when taking conscious of when I'm taking care of patients? Yeah, that's a great, that's actually a really great point because that's one of the things that I've seen over the 20 years of doing this work is many people want to work on their, on well, they may not call it their relationship with food, but that's what I call it. They want to work on, on fixing what feels really bad. Um, what they don't realize at first, but, but it comes to them later, is that how you do anything is how you do everything. So if we are uh, yo-yoing in our eating, it's possible that we're also yo-yoing in our self-care, that we're, you know, uh, pedal to the metal all week long, trying to, you know, see as many patients as we can or as we're forced to see, and then we collapse on the weekend, right? So there's that all or nothing kind of phenomenon again. Um, when, when we learn how to make mindful decisions about our eating, it begins to translate into mindfulness in other areas of our lives. A specific example for me is that I noticed as I began to learn how to pause before I ate and start to notice whether I was hungry or whether this was some emotional trigger or boredom, and then made a conscious decision about whether I was going to eat or not, which by the way, eating anyway is a perfectly um, legitimate decision. The point is I was actually making a decision instead of doing it on default. So I began to get really good at doing this or having more awareness about my eating. And then I noticed that before I would go into the room of a patient, instead of just rushing from one patient to the next and kind of working my way through the schedule, I would pause, put my hand on the chart, or if you're using electronic medical records, putting your hand on the doorknob and just taking a couple of deep breaths to let everything go that's going on 
outside of that patient encounter. All the other patients, everybody that's waiting, the refills, the disasters going along, going on, unless somebody needs CPR, the only thing that's important is the next patient that you're going to see. And giving yourself just that moment to catch your breath and get centered. Maybe this is when you're looking through the patient's record, reminding, you know, reminding yourself of what's going on with them or when the last time was and all of this. And that when you walk in that room, you are fully with that patient. It was amazing because I would discover that when I was making eye contact and listening deeply to my patients, I picked up on what they were really there for way earlier than I was doing it before. We all have the hand on the doorknob phenomenon. This happens all the time, but I found it happened much less because I wasn't stuck to what that chief complaint was on the schedule. I was listening to what my patient had really scheduled that appointment for, and I was able to get to it much more quickly. They felt heard, I felt um, connected to them, and my day felt less frenetic, less frantic, um, and I think I was a better physician when I was being conscious, mindful, and aware than when I was just getting through the day. Yeah. And can you talk to, too, because I'm really interested in weight-neutral terms and promoting more, like you said, well-being over weight numbers. Mm-hmm. It's such a challenge, I feel like, in these days because we're focusing on um, the, your BMI and, you know, we're watching it, all of this. And so how can we, in practice, be weight neutral when we're talking, you know, to our diabetic patients who we know that there's a correlation between, you know, their adipose tissue and their disease state? Oh, you nailed it right there. You use the exact word that I want you to remember, which is correlation. We don't actually have any evidence that weight and diabetes are a cause and effect. In fact, it's possible that the connection goes the other way around. It's possible that when people are developing, um, you know, insulin, you know, around insulin issues, when they have a genetic propensity to that, that they're that they're pre-diabetes and their weight gain is occurring in tandem. It's not that one causes the other. So that's the first thing I would remind you is that as physicians, as healthcare professionals, we are flooded with articles and data that assume that weight is the problem. But if you really read the literature as I have in preparation for that presentation I was doing, I was telling you about earlier, I can tell you that these are not randomized controlled trials. When you, for example, the diabetes prevention program, they improve diets, um, get people exercising, they put them in group support, they do diabetes education, and oh, by the way, they lose weight. And look, their diabetes gets better. Well, how do you know that it's the weight loss? And here's, here's something else to, else to consider is m- the vast majority of people in the DPP regain their weight but their diabetes stays better. So, you, you know, it's slightly improved. And so here's the issue is we have to be looking at what the data is really saying instead of just reading the abstract and assuming that, that right there is our answer, just tell people to lose weight. The other thing that um, is really helpful is to remember that there's very few other things that we treat 
where we give a prescription knowing that it's going to fail 95% of the time. That's the, that's the common number that's thrown out there, but the range, depending on what data, what studies you look at, it's around there. Um, 95% of the time we know diets and weight loss prescriptions are going to fail long-term. They will, they will be successful short-term, but they'll fail long-term. Why would we blame the patient when we were the one that prescribed something that we already know from, from the literature doesn't work long-term? We've seen it clinically. Many of us have personally experienced it. And then I guess the last thing I would say is, um, this is a very dramatic study, but I want to share it because I think it really helps physicians understand this. So we've all seen the show, The Biggest Loser. They did a really elegant study a number of years ago on one cohort of the participants in The Biggest Loser. Um, in fact, they got all but one of the participants to, to, do the, to participate in the study. They did really exhaustive metabolic testing on them before the show. At the end of the show, and then I think it was six years later. I'd, I'd go back and look at my notes, but I think it's six years later. Um, at the end of the program, they had lost a significant amount of weight on average, more than 100 pounds, um, and their metabolism had dropped by about 600 calories per day. And you'd kind of think, well, that makes sense because they're in a smaller body. Even though they've built up all this additional muscle mass, they're in a smaller body. They need fewer calories. Okay, that makes sense. They went back, repeated all the metabolic testing a number of years later. They found that all but one had regained the vast majority of their weight and their metabolisms were still 600 calories lower. So I want you to think about that impact. Now, obviously, The Biggest Loser is a horrible way to, to lose weight, but think about the impact on the metabolism. They've lost weight, their metabolism drops, they regain the weight, their metabolism does not go back up. So we're, putting, we're setting people up for this feudal cycle where they have to eat less and less and less, but their body continues to regain weight. And then we blame them, even though the, there's been metabolic tests that show us that that's exactly what happens. So I, I could go on and on about this. You can tell I'm really passionate about it. And I'm glad you asked because here's, what, here's where the, the rubber hits the road. You and I, or you know, those of you who are still in clinical encounters on a daily basis, have the opportunity to shift this dialogue away from shame and blame and guilt to really talking about behaviors, because weight is not a behavior. Behaviors look like, how are you practicing self-care? What does your sleep look like? Is there a change you're considering in making in your diet? You know, we've talked about your smoking before. That's a, even a much bigger risk factor than your, than your weight ever will be. Even if you gained a few pounds if you quit smoking, it's still a much bigger risk factor. Should we focus on that? You know, there's a, a physical activity. We know there's loads of studies that show that people who are physically active are healthier than those who are not, no matter what they weigh. And the last thing I'll say about the BMI is that it's a really bad measure. It was not created to assess individuals' health. It was created in the 1800s by a, a I think he was a sociologist who had no health background whatsoever. And then it was taken by another scientist who decided that it would make a nice little easy mathematical formula. 
Um, but when you actually look at the formula, there was a, there was a study where they found that um, in this town, the people with a BMI of around 32 had an average body fat percentage of 32%. Perfect. That sounds like a great correlation. When they actually looked at the range, the body fat percentage ranged from 18 to, to 48, or no, 18 to 42. That's crazy. BMI tells us nothing about an individual's health, body fat, uh, physical activity, behaviors, uh, genetic history. It tells us nothing. And so I think, I think our patients deserve better than to use bad numbers and to be harangued by something that I think someday we're going to look at this and, and think of it like we think about leeches. Yeah. Like what were we doing to people? <laughs> Right, right. Well, I right. love all of this that you're telling us. You're going to have to come back, uh, obviously. There's so much more that we need to talk on and get into more with mindful eating because you're absolutely right. Like, this is where we need to step through into the future. And I'm just so empowered. And I hope my listeners are too, that so many times when patients are asked us, which diet should we do? You know, what should I be eating? All of that, that now I feel empowered to be like, it's not about that. So I yeah. thank you for that. If you are listeners awesome. are listening and they're like, oh my God, I need some more Dr. May in my life. Where can they go and find you, your books, your workbooks, all of that? Thank you for asking. Um, well, my, the best place, because it has everything, actually a lot of information, is amihungry.com. So A-M-I-H-U-N-G-R-Y.com. That's my main, main website. And um, if you click on store, it has all of my books. The title of the titles of my book series is Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat. And I have a book for yo-yo dieting. I have one for diabetes. I have one for binge eating. I have one for students. I teach at Arizona State University. Um, and then we have workbooks. We have a workbook for people who've had bariatric surgery and continue to struggle and so on. Um, I also train health and wellness professionals to offer these programs in their own community. So there's information about that. And then there's a ton of free stuff, downloads, one-page handouts that you can give to your patients. Uh, there's links for you to download or give to your patients to download the first chapter of Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat, so they can decide for themselves if, that's, uh, if it makes sense to them. And that's what I would do, because the first time somebody brings this up, you and I both know we're not going to have an hour and a half to go into their entire diet and eating history. And so I usually would say something like, you know, we've had this conversation before, and I really appreciate that you're concerned about your well-being. Um, but in my experience, diets are not very effective, and they don't make long-term change, which is really what our relationship is about, is, is us as a team helping you achieve optimal well-being. Um, I've heard of this program called Am I Hungry? And there's this book called Eat What You Love, Love What You Eat. You can download the first chapter and, you know, decide whether it makes sense. And if it does come back, let's talk some more about it. That way you're not in that situation of trying to um, convince them in a very short period of time, uh, you know, that, that they don't need a diet pill. <laughs> you know? 
I'll give exactly. you the exactly exactly link Aaron to the to download the first chapters of the books and that way people can easily access it read it for yourself first make sure it makes sense to you because I'm not I'm not here to sell people on something I just know the difference that it's made for the people that I've worked with absolutely yeah. we'll get that all in the show notes and yeah. blow it up because I think that obviously you've been doing this for an amount of time. You're a trusted colleague in, I really feel like this is the wave of the future where we're moving into it. I'm just so excited that that's where we're moving, that we are disrupting the diet industry. I love it. Thank you. I do too. I do too. And I would love to come back because we could talk a lot more about, because I think a lot of physicians themselves struggle with these issues and, and that adds, at least it did for me, more shame, more repentance, you know, I felt like I should know better and I was doing everything that I had read and I was trying different things and it only seemed to be making it worse. And I think, you know, a lot of physicians deal with that and it's hard for them to talk to their patients when they themselves are, are struggling with these issues. Absolutely. So Do you have any physician specific resources or any you know, it's interesting. I don't talk to physicians any differently than I talk to other people. I just say, you know, doctors are people too. <laughs> so I think the things that would help um, an individual would help a physician. Now we do do training, as I mentioned. And the other thing that we do that I think is really powerful, I get a ton of um, physicians, nurses, psychologists, dietitians who attend my mindful eating retreats because it's a five-day, four-night intensive experience. We have a lot of fun. There's a ton of, of space for self-care um, and a lot of connection, but we can move through the concepts really quickly and really create some rapid transformational change in a short period of time. And I, I just think, especially female physicians, sometimes getting away from it all and really diving deep in our own self-care and getting support for what that could look like and what that could feel like is really powerful. So I, I would definitely, in fact, I'll, another thing I'll send you, I'll send you a link um, to an article, uh, to a, to a um, story about a physician who came to the workshops, uh, to the retreats, and, and just really how transformational. That might be helpful to other people to kind of understand what that can really look like for somebody. Awesome. We'll get all that in for everybody and share the love. Wonderful. Thank you for the opportunity, Erin, and thank you for what you're doing. I really appreciate it. I wish I'd have had something like this when I was practicing all those many years ago. so much, Dr. May, for coming on the podcast and just drizzling us with all of those truths and encouragement and help for us. I just so appreciate you. I love your website. I love all the free resources, and I've included all of those in the show notes. Um, I'm excited to see when I might get to come hang out with you. So thank you so much, Dr. May. Okay, let's jump into the kick of encouragement. I alluded to it a little bit in the introduction, but I think it's so important to clarify and to bring up 
what we talked about in the conversation talking about being a yo-yo versus a pendulum. So when I'm coaching, many times I see the mindset of all or nothing. Hell, I have lived that mindset all or nothing. My husband makes fun of me because in my 20s, we started jet skiing quite a bit. And he said, you have two settings, stopped or full throttle. And it's so true. It's how I did everything in my life, be it from school, be it from how I thought I needed to be as a wife and a mother and a friend, be it how I drive a damn jet ski. It was all or nothing. I had no middle range. And I think that greatly contributed to why I burned out early in my career. You know what? But I didn't see that model anywhere. I didn't even know how to go half throttle because, again, I was just stuck in the mindset of all or nothing. So getting back to the clients that I'm working with, a lot of times when people first come to me, they're like, Aaron, I fucking hate my job, but I can't leave because then we will have no money. And I usually ask, what's the middle ground here? Can you stay in your job and find a possible solution? Can you quit your job and yet your kids won't be homeless? Let's find like a, a, not a happy medium, but let's find a medium in this. And so we really have to look into that mindset of all or nothing or what Dr. May talks about yo-yo. And I think the yo-yo really sticks with me because it's so true. The yo-yo can't just drift in the middle. It's either wound tight up at the top or it's loose and out of control at the bottom. And so I think it's so important that we really focus in on that and shift to that pendulum. That sometimes, yeah, we're shifting all the way to the right, all the way to the left, but there's that space in the middle to kind of gyrate back and forth and kind of find a center with that. Because here's the thing. You don't just get work-life balance and it's static and it stays. There's always an ebb and flow. There's always a flux happening. And so I just, I don't know, I really clung on to that pendulum, especially after having this conversation with her and thinking about being more conscious and more mindful. And when I started kind of swing out of control, seeing that, getting those signals and being like, okay, I don't need to swing all the way out of control. And yet I don't need to swing all the way to like super uber gunner control freak either. There is a medium in the middle of this. And I think too, it goes back to some of our training. I mean, what's the first thing that you're taught whenever you're trying to diagnose a problem? At least for me, it was like, okay, what can maim or kill people? That's like top priority. That's like the swinging all the way to the crazy side and then we go to like the middle after we have eliminated heart attack PE and all the things that could kill you within minutes and I think again we have to look and say okay what is most probable what is probably happening in here and not jumping to those far extremes either oh the patient's crazy and nothing's happening or oh my god they're dying right here in front of me Now, of course, there are those situations that happen, but it's not on a recurrent basis. And I think we can't treat our lives in those extremes either. So what I want to give you an example for and some homework to do is think of the last time that you were just extra upset, like losing your shit crazy in a situation, be it that 
For me, for instance, someone hacked into my Facebook account and tried to spend several thousand dollars on bogus Facebook ads, or it could be something much simpler, like something happened at home or in the office or in the hospital, whatever it is. I want you to think back to that moment when you were like seriously losing it and like the world was coming apart. And I want you to analyze that and see if you were an all or nothing mindset. I would say that you probably were. I know that I was definitely. I was thinking when my Facebook account got hacked, oh my God, they're stealing all of my money. They probably have all of my important numbers. They're probably reading through my emails right now and sending crap to everyone. Oh my God, things are terrible. The world is coming apart. Luckily, though, I have a great husband who uh, sees when I go into that, and you have a great life coach who now helps you with that as well, that in that moment, you need to just breathe and assess what's going on with you. Just take a breath. That's the best thing that you can do is just take 10 breaths. Make yourself stop and do it. Then the next thing you need to think is, am I truly unsafe? Am I truly in danger of the world falling apart and something seriously dangerous happening to me. And once you can kind of ramp yourself down from that, then you can start asking the questions of like, what is essential that I need to do in this situation? For the Facebook hacker scamming ads, what I needed to do was to breathe, to stop freaking out, and then contact my card holder and have the card canceled. Luckily, like I said, having the own experience of my own, that's not what I initially wanted to do. But that's what the homework I want you to do is think of that situation and then think about how you'll handle it next time. Because guess what? The more we practice this, the more we'll be able to use it in practical use when it happens the next time. Because guess what? It probably is. So kick of encouragement today, all or nothing mindset. We're going to bust it yo-yo mindset we're going to bust it and instead we're going to find the middle ground or the pendulum mindset i hope this exercise was helpful for you again i've used it a lot in my coaching life and in my personal life and i think a lot of us i guess i'm just a yo-yo i don't know but i'm working on it to getting it changed well i greatly appreciate you tuning in I don't really care about five-star reviews. I love getting emails from you, so keep the emails coming, but I don't really care about comments and like iTunes and all that sort of stuff. But what I would really, really love for you to do, share this podcast with a friend. If you're finding it helpful, if you're getting insights, if it's in some way positively changing your life, I would love for you just to share it with a friend so that maybe we can help a colleague out as well. So with that being said, remember that the mastermind is still going on. We're still having signups. Listen to episode uh, 101, 102 if you want more details about the mastermind. Of course, email me or check it out on my website. I would love to add a few more of you guys into it and get going in January 2020 to hashtag live our best lives. All right, my friend, well, remember your life, your calling, your pulse matters. Bye.